Is it warmer in Iowa today? It's beautiful in Iowa today. It's yeah, 75 and sunny. It, oh, just like yesterday, huh? Yeah, just like yesterday and the day before. Welcome back, everybody, to season three of Fieldwork. I'm Zach Johnson. I'm Mitchell Hora. Zach, I cannot believe they invited us back for a third season. It is a miracle. I am just as surprised as you are, Mitchell, but here we are. You would think they would learn. And of course, a big thank you to the Walton Family Foundation for their support this season as well. Yeah, this is going to be a big season. Lots to talk about. Lots happening in the world of agriculture, and those topics are what we got to cover here on our super serious podcast brought to you by farmers for farmers. Zach, you do a wee bit of farming up north day. Yeah, I don't know about you, but we just kind of grew some crop and harvested it, and it was just all planted done. it, and then you came back later and picked it when it was all done, and you just on vacation the rest of the time, or what? Yeah, pretty simple. Not a lot of not a lot of thought going into it. You planted it on video. That's right, because the fields are now actually a studio set. Oh, oh, it's all just green screen. Green screen is what you're yes. telling me. You've it's all completely green, screen. green screened your entire farm. <laughs> That'd be a lot cheaper. No, we've. We've continued to change things up on our farm. We've trying to continue to figure out this whole regenerative, sustainable soil health, carbon, whatever the heck it's called now. It keeps changing, I think, every time we uh, every time we talk. But progressing, and I don't know, it's been interesting, and we're having some pretty good success with it for our farm. So excited to continue to push things. But you guys were trying some new stuff on your farm. How'd some of that turn out? Yeah, we actually did farm this last year. We put quite a bit of work into that. There was there was a lot of thought into it as well. But we uh, we have reduced a fair amount of tillage. One of the things we've got out here, a couple of different tools. I'll go over it. One is the um, vertical tillage tool that we've been using, and it's it's really adjustable, so we can add more angle to the disc blades, or we can take that angle completely out. Um, but it's a it'd be a form of a high speed disc or a vertical tillage disc. Um, I really like it. We've got a, a different style one coming this year with some con concavitization, concavitation, <laughs> con- concave con- discs. <laughs> How about that? Some concave <laughs> discs. That's right. Some concave discs. And uh, we're going to try that out and see if we like that better. Maybe, maybe not. In certain situations, we might. Um, there's, you know, there's kind of a give and take there. But the big thing that I, I've been pretty excited about is. Um, I actually bought a strip till machine. It's used, well used, but we went through it pretty good, added some stuff to it and took our fertilizer cart that we were running on a deep bander before and put that behind the strip till machine. And uh, I just did a bunch more updates to it here over the winter. So we've got uh, blockage monitors in there. We've switched it over to hydraulic drive. Um, so we're going to be stripping in 30 inch bands and fertilizing, I'm going to be able to put down anhydrous with that at the same time. So I'm hoping that goes really well this fall because I'm pretty excited about it. I've got a lot of time and money into it. Yeah. And you're going to wait on all of that until the fall of 2021 or anything going to go out here spring of 2021 before this year's crop or not? No, because most of our acres last fall got uh, conventional till. So, so we won't be doing more more than likely we won't be doing any strip tilling this spring um we've got our fertilizer down from last fall so that's all out there we we could run the tiller without you know the fertilizer cart behind it but i don't think we will yeah no that seems like a really good way to be able to do things and kind of a hybrid system to be able to utilize some of the equipment that you've already got 
and just kind of be able to piece in bit by bit some new equipment for the operation. It's a good way to go about it. Yeah, that's what worked out well for us was, you know, we already had that fertilizer cart and um, the local dealer had this strip till machine. And as you know, a lot of those machines can get, they can get really expensive. Well, this one happened to be a pretty good opportunity for me to jump in at the right time. I kind of felt like if I was going to try it, this was uh, the way to go for now and we'll see where it takes us. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And that's been a really key thing that I always think about too, is as we're trying new things on a farm that it's got to be able to work within the equipment that we've already got. So, um, yeah, in 2020, we, we actually ended up with five different crops. We had corn, soybeans, cereal, rye, malt, barley, and seed mustard. But the rye, barley, mustard was all drilled in with our, just our normal no-till drill. We got a Great Plains no-till drill and, uh, didn't change any of the equipment there. Same thing for like the relay cropping, didn't change any equipment, um, might have been better with a stripper head or a draper head to be able to harvest that cereal grain, but our normal soybean platform worked just fine and things turned out really well and we're scaling it up for 2021. So continuously learning, that's for darn sure though. Uh, We've been busy recording some awesome new episodes for you guys and you're going to love them. First up, we check in with John Harith. Yeah, he's the news director for Farm Journal. And he's got his own broadcast set up at home, just like us. And we asked John to tell us what he's got his eye on now that the Biden administration is off and running. John, thanks for coming on the show with us. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. A little disappointed the helicopter didn't come pick me up, but glad to be here. Trust us, we're disappointed too. Nope, no choppers today. As we look forward into the future here, what do you see looking towards the future when it comes to the Biden administration and agriculture? Well, obviously, uh, climate is their top priority uh, uh, after we get past COVID issues. Uh, um, and you've seen that in some of the appointments in the Biden administration um, with Gina McCarthy coming back, former EPA administrator as a domestic climate czar, if you will. Um, and and so, um, you know, everything is going to be uh, centered around climate. Every agency is going to have a role to play in climate. It's kind of when that uh, Amazon box shows up and you brought it in the house and you've got it sitting in the in the table. You know it's here, but you don't know what's in it yet. That's kind of where we are with the Biden administration on, on climate change. We know uh, we know it's here. We know there is going to be something very soon, but we don't have uh, a clear picture yet of what is, is inside that box. But we do have some clues coming um, um, here and there. Well, and do you think part of that's going to be with some of the bills that are already um, on the table in D.C., at least at the time that we're recording this, as far as the Carbon Bank and the Growing Climate Solutions Act? Or do you think it's going to be kind of intertwined into those or maybe something a little bit totally different? I think the Growing Climate Solutions Act is going to be a big part of it and and kind of the first step in this. Um, And and you're going to see that kind of, um, among other things, open the door for the Commodity Credit Corporation to be the funding mechanism to put uh, dollars into farmers' hands for carbon capture. How exactly that works, we don't have, we don't know yet, um, and I don't know that USDA knows yet. They are pushing now a Farm Bureau, among others, pushing to raise that lending cap for Commodity Credit Corporation up to sixty-eight billion dollars from the current thirty. Um, it has been at thirty since it was uh, created. Farm Bureau, among others, argue that index for inflation it should now be sixty-eight billion dollars. So that would obviously open up a lot more dollars for these kind of programs. A key person to watch in all of this is Robert Bonney, who has been named the, the uh, climate 
lead at USDA. He's been at USDA before in the Obama administration. Um, and he drafted, it was uh, one of the lead authors on something called the Climate 21 Project that was a transition document uh, used by the Biden administration looking at climate issues. Um, and, and he's playing a very lead role in in what USDA is doing over climate. And at Ag Outlook Forum, uh, he dropped a couple of clues. One is that um, USDA has 30 days to get input from stakeholders on what climate smart agriculture should look like in the Biden administration. And then they've got another some 75 days to actually put forth some proposals on enacting climate uh, smart agriculture. I think the other big clue that he dropped in that speech they see this as we put out a, an initial plan, get feedback, tweak it, get some more feedback, tweak it again, and continue to adjust what USDA does in this climate space. Um, even though it's it's early, you're going to start seeing talk about the next farm bill and what shape that next farm bill should take. We've seen a, a tremendous shift in, in in farm support in the Trump administration um, with the uh, the continuing ad hoc payments through uh, CFAP and MFP and everything else, um, there is not an appetite in Congress to continue those. Um, so what does the next farm bill look like? I mean, when, when we passed this current farm bill, it was supposed to be that it was uh, positioned to address most, if not all, disasters, and there wouldn't be a need for ad hoc. Well, we learned that wasn't the case, as we do with every farm bill. Um, so, you know, does, does Congress look at... Um, continuing to use Commodity Credit Corporation as kind of a piggy bank for uh, disaster payments, for ad hoc payments, for what USDA needs, uh, for carbon credit purchases, those kind of things. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if um, what the discussion is around the next farm bill and what people um, may want to see changed in that next farm bill as, as the talk gears up for um, you'll hear, you'll see hearings, maybe even starting this year, gearing up for a uh, farm bill to be uh, debated in 2021 to be implemented in 2023. Well, that leads me to a question that I had for you, John. What is the feeling you get from farmers when you're out in the field, so to speak? I mean, how how are farmers reacting to what we think may or may not be coming? Uh, you've got some of that residual skepticism uh, there, but I, I do think that there is some optimism. There, and again, I talk more to farm group leadership than I do uh, actually out on the farm, uh, you know, since I work mostly in policy. But the leadership I talk to is, is really uh, optimistic that this time that it will be more incentive based, that the administration will be working with farmers to, to get their feedback on what works on the farm and not just um, putting in uh, regulations, um, you know, using the stick approach rather than the carrot approach. Um, so we'll see if time, you know, time will tell whether or not that actually happens, but that is the anticipation at this point, I think. There's so many different iterations here. And we talk about it all the time on the podcast, you know, between Zach's location up in Minnesota and, and my location in Southeast Iowa, but those are big differences. And the stuff that we deal with on our farms is totally different. But if you factor in trying to figure out policy for Hawaii and Florida and, you know, Washington and Maine and everything else. Like there's so many different variables. So how do you think, you know, I guess what's our role in helping to make sure that some of these policies are going to be adaptable to everywhere in the country? Well, a, a couple of things. One, um, and this was encouraging to me, um, John Doggett, 
who is the CEO of the National Corridors Association, said that on the eve of Michael Regan's nomination to be EPA uh, administrator, Regan called John Doggett out of the blue and talked to him at length about how do we work together? How do we get input uh, from you? And And as you read through all these documents, there is a lot of discussion about getting input, about forming new committees to get that input. So uh, there is going to be a lot of opportunity uh, to influence this. Uh, the other thing I, I'd say um, in listening to some of Robert Bonney's comments is he talks a lot about multiple tools to uh, accomplish uh, these climate change goals, um, that they realize that it's not a one-size-fits-all, as you mentioned. You, you've got different agriculture in different states. You're going to need different tools uh, to address uh, those kind of things. Um, and... and I also think it's going to, and this is where I think folks need to be really watchful of what happens and how it Im- impacts them, but um, this is going to be not just um, taking CCC funding for uh, carbon, cr- to pay buy carbon credits, but it's things like they're looking at crop insurance and how do we build incentives into crop insurance that maybe lowers your rate if you're taking uh, certain uh, carbon capture actions on your farms or things like that. So th- there's gonna be a number of different things to watch. What are you looking at in terms of other tools to meet those demands when you when we talk about things like seeds or uh, equipment research or any other innovations? What do you see that you think is going to make the difference in helping to move that needle? You know, I, I don't know. Sky's the limit. And that's, um, you know, where USDA is also looking uh, for input on this. Um, there, there's really in this Climate 21 uh, document there, there's nothing along those lines in there. They do talk about uh, biofuels a little bit. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot about uh, soil. Um, there is a lot about um, rural electric in there. In that, um, you know, USDA puts out a lot of rural development money, millions of dollars every year, um, focusing that money on projects that will uh, reduce carbon emissions in in rural electric uh, cooperatives, things like that. So, John, we're seeing a lot of um, private industry getting into the carbon space and such as well. What do you think is going to happen there as policy now kind of tries to catch up with some of the initiatives that are already happening in, in the soil and the carbon space? Uh, that's it, exactly. I mean, you've got a number of players out there that are really pushing government and policy forward. Uh, there is, and I think that's what the big difference is this time around versus the last time uh, that government really tried to take on uh, the climate issue uh, back in the Obama administration is that you've got uh, the industry and consumers pushing for this. Um, and th- we, we don't know exactly what that marketplace is yet. Um, you know, there are, the, there are programs out there, but there's not one clear definition of, of how we measure carbon capture in agriculture uh, and, and how that is valued. Um, but the marketplace is pushing towards that. I think that's probably a big role that USDA could play in this, is doing the research to set those ground rules, to set um, you know, what, how we measure that carbon capture and then how, you do, how do you financially reward that. Um, just a, a quick follow-up on that is, you know, I was reading through the um, the United Nations report on growing um, carbon markets and growing independent carbon markets. And a big piece of that was, yeah, we need to have some structure behind it. We need to make sure that there's not double accounting. We need to make sure that there's not embezzlement and such in some of these markets. And I think that can be the role of the government in this, but 
how quickly do you think some of these things can be scaled up? Because some of these markets are already here. The policy is being talked about and wanting to push it forward quickly, but is it going to be fast enough to be able to keep up with what private industry is doing? The other important thing uh, along the lines of what you're talking about is that we need to make sure that we preserve the, the value for the farmer in this and that somebody else doesn't try to capture that carbon value, somebody further down the line. Um, and, and I don't mean that ethanol plants would do this, but I just use it as an example. An ethanol plant could conceivably uh, sell carbon credits to a company saying that, hey, we are capturing all of this carbon, including the uh, production of the crop. Um, you know, so we need to make sure that the farmer is able to preserve the the value that they're creating on farm and that doesn't get uh, gobbled up somewhere else in the value chain. And uh, I, I want to say, you know, a lot of people are still pretty skeptical about measuring sequestered carbon. How do we do that? What what's the what's the path to that? And how do we make that work? And then how big of a difference can ag actually make in the long term scheme of things here? How how big will that difference be? How do we get farmers on board and how do we make this as simple as possible to make sure that farmers will take part in this? And Mitchell, same question goes to you because you're way ahead of me on this stuff. And Mitchell may be able to answer this question better than I can. But um, first of all, I think you just have to build trust in a system. Um, and you know, USDA is going to have to take that up and do the research to get to your point, uh, Zach, about you know how do we measure this? How do we have a level playing field um, where everyone is working from the same yardstick. And, you know, USDA is going to have to do some research to figure out how we do that. There are some private people out there now also doing that research to try to come up with that. But you're going to have to have that one level playing field in order to do that, to build the trust in the marketplace. And then once you've got that trusted marketplace that is showing uh, some folks making money off of it, uh, Mitchell, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's where you start to see things really take off. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of with that United Nations report that was looking at um, the Paris Agreement and some of the things that things that are going to be needed by 2030, by 2050. I think they're expecting a increase in carbon markets, not just soil carbon markets, but there's lots of different types of carbon markets and offsets as well. It's not, it's not only sequestration, but it's mitigation as well. So there's two different even halves of the carbon markets that are available today. But these carbon markets have to grow 15x by 2030 is what this report was saying and predicting um and it's going to drive the the dollar value of that ton of carbon quite a bit as well but i think what we're seeing from the agronomy and or the agricultural side of things and soil carbon is that we need to be able to understand how to actually model the carbon that is being sequestered zach to your point that it's impossible to actually measure the amount of carbon in an acre of soil, an acre at one foot deep is 2 million pounds. The ability to be able to get those models to be right is a, a major issue. And John, are you seeing anything there on, you know, how can we get the models to be better? The USDA already has the Comet Farm tool um, developed out of Colorado State, but any of these policies or push going to get some more funding to be able to make that tool more robust, or are we going to see other tools come to the forefront? No matter what it is that, that uh, comes out of USDA and out of Congress, you are going to see that as a centerpiece of it, of how do we measure this? What is the measuring stick? Um, and, and to your point, Mitchell, I, I think a bigger or another challenge in this is not just measuring how much extra carbon is that soil capturing, 
but um, you know, how much have the efforts already taken by that farmer? How much is that capturing? Because we want to make sure that they get the value for what they've already been doing, not just what they add on top of it. Um, and that's going to be another challenge for this process. Um, and, and Zach, your question about how much impact agriculture can have, uh, again, this Climate 21 project report, uh, their estimate was that agriculture and forestry combined would add uh, 10 to 20% of the needed change in uh, carbon. Uh, what, what would need to be done in the U.S., 10 to 20% of that would come from forestry and agriculture. And I think part of that is like that right now we're emitting or like agriculture and forestry, livestock, the overall industry emits something like 12% of the annual U.S. carbon emissions. But then we would have the ability to sequester like 5% of the U.S.'s total emissions, something like that. That's that like 15 or 20% difference that you're referring to, I think. Think that's right, John, or am I reading that? Well, yeah, it's it's a combination of both a reduction in emissions and also sequestration would equal ten to twenty percent of the total need in change for the U.S. I'm going to ask a question to both of you along these lines, coming from a simple farmer here. I'm on the outside looking in, running my farm, and all of a sudden this carbon market thing has become huge. Everybody's talking about it. Nobody has answers. Is this something where I'm going to need to shift my farm towards taking advantage of these carbon markets and and really jump on it and make sure that I'm doing my part to jump in here and capture any value that I can? Or can I keep doing what I'm doing and the neighbor's going to jump on carbon markets and have a huge financial advantage over me? How concerned about this do I need to be over the next 5, 10, 20 years? I'm going to let Mitchell take that one first because you you can address more directly what the cost is going to be, which is a big part of this equation. I mean, you've got to make sure that the cost matches what you can get per ton of carbon. Yeah, that's the major issue right now. And full disclosure, I have not um, fully signed up for any of these carbon markets, and um, and we're very thoroughly into it. But it um, it's also based on how the rules are written right now. Rewards farmers that are making massive changes to decrease their tillage, add cover crop for the first time, and de- decrease um, synthetic inputs, especially nitrogen. So, so it's, it's maybe another situation where somebody who's not doing a lot of tillage and has been planting cover crops and is at the forefront of it, you can't jump on and take advantage of these programs as, as well as I could? Right. That's exactly it. And John, that that brings me to kind of to my question. So, so Zach, your operation can get paid significantly because you have been utilizing some tillage. You've been reducing... Um, so that change, you're not going to get paid for some of them. You might be able to grandfather in some of the changes, but, but John, you were bringing up, you know, how do we get farmers compensated for the carbon they've already sequestered or changes they've already made? I don't, I, I honestly don't foresee that happening at all. However, the number one thing that I think needs to be changed in this is to look at agriculture and our carbon on an annual sequestration basis. All of these markets right now are really cost share. And Zach, kind of to your question, you know, right now it's just a, a different cost share. You could go get Equip, you could get CSP, you could get state funding or watershed funding to be able to make some changes to, you know, get a strip till rig or plant cover crop or or do other water or carbon type of practices. And that's really how these are set up right now is based on 
how far you change your operation. But my argument, and John, what your thoughts on it, is that farmers that are already doing these systems have the microbial communities built up to be able to foster cover crop and foster more diversity in their systems. And my argument would be that oh, after you make the transition, now your system is really functioning and on an annual basis, that cover crop and your cash crop and whatever else you're doing is sequestering carbon on an annual basis. And the issue right now is that we're on, all these markets are only looking at the change in practices. But my argument being every year, farms are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And if we can get more photosynthesis going, get more biomass out there, get more diversity to stimulate more communities of microbes and continuously reduce tillage, that that has a net better effect than only looking at the change in practices. Well, and from a political and policy standpoint, um, if you don't reward those early adopters, they're not going to be excited about these programs. They're not going to be trying to uh, talk to others about how great they are because, you know, Mitchell, if you're not seeing dollars come in from it because you've already spent the dollars to get there, um, you're not going to have the enthusiasm of the early adopters that this is going to need to get it to spread. That's exactly, you know, a huge part of my point as well, that the the early adopters are not just the ones that, you know, I don't think they're going to be necessarily after it to get paid all this money and, and everything. They need to be able to make money. They need to be able to uh, participate in these markets and offset you know, global carbon footprint, but yeah, their knowledge is super important to be able to bring others along with them that there's not that, you know, only what 4% of the farms in the country or 4% of the acreage in the country are utilizing cover crops, very small percentage of, of acres, but those acres are where all the other farmers need to learn from them. And, and Zach, I mean, it goes to the point we always talk about it, building that community around, you know, those local farmers. Um, but right now, those farmers that are already doing the practices do not even qualify for these markets. And, and the key piece of that for clarification for everybody is it's based on the additionality clause that these markets are looking at additional things that you're doing in your operation. My argument is that every year on an annual basis, I am adding cover crop and I'm adding my cash crop adding more days of photosynthesis so that every year I am pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere, but that's just different than how some of these other markets are set up. Um, so there's just some rules that need to be better fine-tuned, I think. Yeah, those are some really good points. And you talked a lot about the building the community there. I mean, we're going to talk about that all through season three. That's kind of a common theme when it comes to networking and figuring out how to make some of these things work on your farm. And, and I think I think we're going to find that networking is kind of the biggest key when it comes to, you know, moving forward and, and integrating the, these other practices that we're all curious about. Um, John, there's been a lot of talk, at least in Minnesota, about nitrogen regulations and how do we handle our nitrogen applications? You know, anhydrous ammonia is not great for the soil. I hate what it does to the soil, but I love the fact that I can put it down in the fall right before my soil freezes up. And then in the spring, my nitrogen application is done. And I know a lot of people in my area love that and certainly north of me. But how do we maybe move away from anhydrous application and maybe not necessarily move away from it totally, but but manage it better? And what do you see coming down the pipeline when it comes to nitrogen regulation specifically? Yeah, and nothing coming out of the Biden administration so far, but you're certainly seeing it, as you mentioned, there in Iowa, 
Um, you're, you're seeing a, a big push to, to regulate nitrogen and, and particular nitrogen flows. It'll be interesting to see where this administration goes with that. Um, I would hope that you'll see the, the continued carrot rather than stick method carried through with nitrogen regulation as well, and looking at using um, some of the conservation programs within USDA to, to uh, fund and encourage uh, practices that, that fix nitrogen, that, that uh, control the flow of nitrogen off-farm, uh, those types of things. And, and as you know, there's a lot of new products coming out on the market, uh, microbials, et cetera, that, that help fix nitrogen that um, help reduce the the amount needed. I mean, you're just going to you're going to see that technology, I think, continue to grow. Uh, again, it's going to take uh, education and and you know folks like Mitchell out there uh, getting at the forefront of it and showing how they can be successful. But I think um, you're going to if you don't see on farm changes, um, you know, especially in states like Iowa and Illinois, you are going to see tightened regulation on that uh, because of some of the concerns about nitrogen in particular, um, and, and particularly when you get to uh, Gulf of Mexico hypoxia issues. Part of you know all these different programs and, and cost share type stuff is the money, the concern is where's the, all the money come from? There's been a lot of money come out of DC over the last year. A lot of money you know, through some of these programs for trade with MFP, for COVID with this, you know, but with all these other programs and continued focus, is that money really going to be there? Is it going to be long-term sustainable? And I mean, Zach, that's to your point on, do you jump into one of these carbon markets? Well, are they going to be there long-term? Their 10-year commitment, um, when is the right time to be able to do some of these things? And um, how are they going to really work and ensure that these programs are going to be economically sustainable? Well, and I and I think that's part of why Congress or why uh, the administration is looking at commodity credit corporation for spending on carbon credits. Uh, you've got, you know, just this year, you've got some fifteen billion dollars that is going to go out in CFAT payments. Um, and so, even though we've got a market that is more supportive of farm income, uh, there are still some structural weaknesses there. Um, as I mentioned, there's not an appetite to continue a program like CFAP, but do we look at using CCC for carbon payments um, in some ways as a replacement for the money that's been going into agriculture through the CFAP program? I, I think the administration is, uh, I think at least some of the administration are looking at it that way of this is a way that we can continue to have support for agriculture without continuing an ad hoc program. Good points there. Yeah. I, I always just thought we could hit print. That's where the <laughs> money comes from. Well, yeah. Well, John, we appreciate the conversation today and uh, Mitchell as well for keeping me going on the carbon sequestration talk because that is so far above my head. I depend on you for that, but it's interesting. Definitely as a farmer sitting here, you know, all of this stuff, you've got to be so aware of it. You've got to keep up. So thanks for joining us, John. Uh, we appreciate it. Hey, thank you. And appreciate the partnership we've had with Fieldwork uh, over these uh, couple of years. We, uh, we've had you guys post some of our uh, write-ups and the audio on your site. So we appreciate that. Yeah. Um, as soon as they get posted, check them out at agweb.com and also on the AgriTalk app. That's John Harris, News Director at Farm Journal, which has been an awesome partner to us here at Fieldwork. And now it's time for a quick break.
And now we're back. So before we get ahead of ourselves too much on the outlook of ag, we want to bring on another guest here too, as a really unique perspective from what he's seen from his time in Washington, D.C. Uh, we've got Bill Northey. He served as a undersecretary at the USDA in the Trump administration. We're going to cover a lot of ground here. But Bill, just start us off with your takeaways from your time in D.C. Well, it uh, was quite an interesting experience. So I come from the farm and and was involved in state government, was secretary of ag here in Iowa, and then uh, got a call from uh, the office of Sonny Purdue about uh, sitting down to talk about what his vision was at USDA. Um, and as we sat down to talk, I, I really, I had not met him before. Great experience to, uh, to, to meet him, have a conversation, get a sense of kind of his vision. Um, my experience there was really kind of on the front lines of, of the delivery of programs. So it was farm programs, conservation programs, crop insurance programs, those kinds of things. Secretary would talk a lot about customer service and about making government work. Um, and so I was in one of those areas that that was really what farmers think about. When does government work? Can I get signed up for a farm program? And does my crop insurance program work the way it's supposed to? And it, can the conservation program be understandable? Um, and so all those pieces were, were just a really great experience, great staff there. Um, we also had a lot to do in three years. We stood up some ad hoc programs, which are additional programs to the standard programs, the market facilitation program, uh, coronavirus food assistance program, um, and, and, and about $50 billion over those five or six different ad hoc programs that we added as well. So, Bill, the USDA, it, it went through some reorganization or some restructuring, and you ended up being the first person that led a team which was known as the Farm Production and Conservation. What were your priorities there, and specifically, what were the priorities when it came to conservation? Yeah, so, Zach, it, it really was a vision of the Secretary. So, the previous Farm Bill, in, in uh, 2014 Farm Bill, had said they'd like to have the trade undersecretary <clears throat> the one that's responsible for, for foreign ag service, be its own standalone undersecretary. So at USDA, you have a, a secretary, a deputy secretary, and then eight undersecretaries. Each have different program areas. The, the, the trade one was with farm programs and with crop insurance. That needed to be pulled out on its own. And so the secretary said, what else should go on if something else should go on. And, and frankly, most of us would think FSA and NRCS should be in the same place, but they reported to somebody different in DC. And sometimes those folks got along and sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they talked and sometimes they didn't. In this case, they were all in the same shot. And we met together all the time. We, we helped our IT coordinate better. We helped our policies coordinate better. Um, and it really, made a lot of sense uh, to focus on the same people. It's the same farmers out there that are working on conservation programs as farm programs. Um, and we could coordinate more of that by being able to have them in the same mission area. So in a way, were you kind of playing middleman to help facilitate the programs between the two sides? We were, um, or I was, um, but you're, you're, just meeting together all the time with both of them and, and you hear something 
uh, with one group, if you're just meeting with that group and you say, hey, they're, they're working on beginning farmer definition over at FSA too. Let's make sure that they're coordinated if they legally can be. And in some cases, Congress actually wrote the legislation different. So NRCS has to do something different than FSA. Um, but in many cases, they could be coordinated. Uh, for example, one of those things that we talked about, and it was really a NRCS um, a risk management agency piece, um, there was a concern about cover crops and whether crop insurance was encouraging or discouraging the use of cover crops. And that's all the way back to agents, as well as policies and adjusters. And whether if you put in a cover crop, you put yourself at risk um, that you might be doing a bad farming practice. Uh, so we had folks meet together. We said, we got to rewrite some of that good farming practice discussion. Let's pull our NRCS folks in to be able to make sure and do that. Uh, it was actually harder than it seemed like it should be, uh, but, but it was very rewarding. Everybody's working together. And at the end of the day, that and some other things, I think, has us to the place today where we'd say crop insurance is not discouraging cover crops. It's a good farming practice, just like nutrient management is. So Bill, as you're looking at changing some of those good management practices or best management practices, I guess the right terminology, what does the process of that look like as we continue to progress and, and farmers innovate further? Mitchell, I think that's a challenge. I mean, that that is government's slow to this process. We see a few folks that abuse a process or look like they're doing that. And it's very easy to overreact um, and, and not recognize that some folks are being creative and not everything that's creative is successful. Um, and so it, it is a challenge to do that. So, so typically around good farming practice, we describe it in general you know, what it takes to be a good farming practice and, and, and how folks analyze it. And then we let a producer say, okay, this was somebody I worked with an extension agent on, I had a consultant on, this is something other people were doing. And if a company says your crop failed because you didn't use a good farming practice, then that producer has the opportunity to say, hey, it was, relay cropping works here because I've got enough time and it works with these two crops back to back. And I tried it with three acres before I've done it with, with 100. Um, and so they're able to do that, not because somebody in DC says, Mitchell can do this or, or you know, Zach can do that because the world is too big. There's too many practices, there's too much creativity. And so, you just define kind of structures of how that gets implemented. And I think part of that is basically saying, well, you know, here is a couple of CCAs, certified crop advisors that are helping me or that kind of sign off that, no, this is something that can work here. Is that basically kind of what that process looks like if somebody is trying something really new? That's exactly right. What part of the error earlier was in cover crops is we require folks, or it appeared like it was requiring folks to kind of pre-qualify their, their cover crop planting time or their termination dates. Well, first of all, termination dates depend on weather. They depend on lots of other things out there. And you can't pre-qualify and, and change that, but, but you can come in later and do it. And we allowed that process for folks to be able to come in and say, I couldn't get, my, I couldn't get in the field. 
uh, until May 20th. Uh, and therefore, uh, me terminating at May 20th was just fine. Um, all my neighbors said that, and and my CCA said it, and and we got in as soon as we could, and that was a timely planting, not because I wanted to harvest it, but because that's when we could get in. And so, um, it really is about timing that's done afterwards, not ahead of time, because we have to have that flexibility for the actual growing season. With some of the advances you made while you were there, do you have any any concerns or ideas on where it might go now with the new administration in place? I don't know that I do. I, I think they have a whole new um, realm of issues when you look at carbon um, and the challenges there. And, and, and I'm sure we'll talk a lot about that, but, but the, the, the challenges there in standing that up, I, I think we did several different programs. You know, I talked about the the CFAP and MFP, and those were different kind of response programs that, that it was amazing. We could stand them up very quickly, but they were based on economics. We could say, how much are people losing? How much are cattlemen losing because of coronavirus? And we could do an economic analysis, and we may or may have been right or not, and, and two people may have a different response, and so we may not hit it just right, but at least we can analyze that. It's a lot more of a challenge to say what's going on in that soil um, and what's going on in that soil in a dry year and a wet year in your farm versus Mitchell's farm versus my farm versus Florida versus Arizona versus Hawaii. Uh, these conservation programs have to work everywhere. And by design, NRCS allows flexibility between states um, with a state technical committee, with local work groups to be able to say equip looks like this in Arizona and looks like this in Montana. Now, how do you do that around climate? And then there's gonna be a great temptation as well to say, hey, we want more cover crops, which I love cover crops. Um, we want more cover crops, therefore let's reduce the cost of insurance for cover crops. Well, if it can be proven that there's less insurance costs, then let's do that. But let's not uh, let's not destroy the actual functioning of of our crop insurance based on incentives that we want to apply someplace else. And so it'll be a temptation for that as well. Cost share to me, payments to me need to be at FSA or NRCS. Um, and they should be there. And then we should always make sure that crop insurance is insuring based on the actual risk. So there'll be those tensions. So Bill, keep digging us a little bit further on that in that you're getting to, you know, there might be some other entities within USDA or, or other groups that get involved here. My understanding is that there's two main bills being worked through DC right now. And obviously you're not, not there in DC anymore, but I'm sure you're super involved and very aware. Uh, my understanding would be the Growing Climate Solutions Act and then the Carbon Bank. Is that correct? And give us kind of the the lowdown on those two things, especially on what a farmer should be paying attention to. Yeah, the, so the Carbon Bank, I'm aware of more in just kind of the general conversation of using uh, using a commodity credit corporation called CCC, uh, which funds conservation programs, ARC PLC, other farm programs. Uh, we went and got some air for market facilitation program payments as well. 
Um, and so it, it's, it's more of a funding mechanism. Now, the bank could be just kind of a determining a value mechanism for the private industry to come in and say, you know, carbon ought to be worth $20 a ton or, or that your system of no-till and cover crops is worth, you know, 0.78 pounds or 0.78 tons of carbon. Um, mine is worth 0.65 or whatever. So there could be a bank as far as determining value in either the carbon or in the practice, in modeling the practice or determining the practice. So I don't know how that's all going to play out. And even when the legislation is done, the real part that farmer cares about is how is it implemented? You know, what's it mean on my farm? You know, what's the payment for my cover crop? And and is there a difference between rye and and three different cover crop uh, mixes in that? And and is there a difference if I terminate it in the end of April or terminate it at the end of or the middle of May? And and do you pay me different? So so I don't think we're going to see any of that definition in the legislation. Congress doesn't know it. They certainly can't know it and. Southeast Iowa versus Northwest Arizona. Um, and so they just need to provide kind of the general tools. So I'd say watch. But I think for farmers, what we all need to do is figure out what can work in our area um, and, and nibble at it. You know, try some cover crops and, and try some other, you know, a different combination of rotation and other pieces get more ready for whatever is going to happen so that that you're more ready. You don't have to change anything wholesale, but get more ready. It's going to come, but I can't tell you the legislation is going to tell you what it looks like. So behind the scenes at the USDA with the amount of attention that carbon markets are getting, as long as we're talking along those lines, what's the talk like behind the scenes at the USDA about how people feel about them and where we head from here? Is it kind of like you're saying where, you know, how do we really make the determination on what it's worth and how do we, you know, you can't put a, you can't put an overall blanket on this and say that this is exactly what this should be, right? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. Um, I think there's, I don't know right now, of course, I'm not there anymore. Um, but and, and the discussions at a different level now, but we did have, the secretary did announce a year ago, Secretary Purdue, the Ag Innovation Initiative, which was to say, we're going to increase production and we're going to decrease inputs. And one of those things we were going to measure was carbon reduction. And so we had some serious efforts in figuring out how do we do some measuring? How do we understand that? We're going to also look at water quality, all other kinds of inputs um, for for 40 percent or a 50 percent reduction in inputs out there as well. Uh, so there was going to be an effort to do that. And so there is kind of an infrastructure of sorts that's there. But we're asking folks if there's a payment to do things in kind of a different way. So NRCS typically looks at cost of implementation and then softens that. So if it costs me, you know, a thousand dollars to put in a grass waterway, they'll pay me five hundred dollars. And I pay I I need to put in the other five hundred and 
and take the land out of production and that all makes sense or or maybe I'll put it into a CRB contract and be able to get paid a, you know part of the rent of what that value is. But in this case if we're trying to figure out value, how many tons is either not emitted um and so there's really two different choices there too isn't there guys i mean we can say i'm normally admitting 100 tons and now i'm only going to emit 60 do i get 40 well i'm still admitting emitting 60 do or am i a no-tiller who's already a negative admitter and do i get paid for continuing to bank that and sequester that carbon in my soil. So is it I'm less bad or is it now I get to keep going? Because otherwise, no-tillers are going to say, no-tiller cover croppers, um, if you've already started that process, you're going to say, why would I keep going? Um, because I can't make improvements. And so there's that tension out there too around, do we pay for conversions that are happening? Do we pay for ongoing sequestering and then how do we protect that once it's in the soil as well so i didn't give you answers zach i gave you questions uh, and and i think folks are trying to figure those out but i think there's going to be a big effort to reach out to producers and say what's happening what do we know about the science and let's make sure the perfect's not the enemy of the good here we're not going to get this all right in the next six months we know directionally where we need to go we need to do less tillage we need to find ways of growing plants on that land more often um let's 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 start that process yeah and you're getting right into you know a lot of the work that i've been trying to push on with these carbon markets is my viewpoint of the carbon markets today that are you know emerging are they're not necessarily a carbon market they're a new private cost share for practice change to be able to say okay well you're you know you're doing three passes of tillage today if you can go to no-till we'll pay you for the difference and if you can add cover crops we'll pay you for the delta in your carbon footprint not necessarily maybe the mitigation that you were saying that you were emitting 100 now you're emitting 60 would pay for the difference there's some you know that can definitely be uh, factored into those mitigation credits as well but um how i think we should be looking at it is what is that grower's bottom line net sequestration that way the more innovative you are the further you push things the more aggressive you get the more that you can be rewarded but how do we approach the science of that how do we change things because it's not even you know, necessarily some of these markets that are coming out of the private sector, they're playing within the rules. So how do we look at, you know, the science component of this? I think the markets have just developed so quickly that I don't know that all the science is really there to be able to back up some of these claims, you know, that we're arguing towards. I think that is a problem, uh, Mitchell. I, I really, I really do. And <clears throat> one of the challenges is, is I think it, feels like we don't have time uh, right because because the expectations are we're going to have a system set up in the next few months and yet we don't have all the knowledge well, and the farmers are getting paid carbon credits today i mean this is real right there, there's farmers getting paid right now so yeah agreed now it's a handful uh it's a tiny handful of folks uh unique circumstances are different and, and maybe at the end of the day it'll be like you know, we don't have to decide if everybody's going to grow biotech corn or non-GMO. We don't have to decide. We let markets do that. I do think it'd be, to most of us, advantage to have 
at least the number two yellow out there, what's kind of the standard of the market. So we kind of know what the base is. Now, if you want to throw something different at me, throw it at me. But but uh, as opposed to 15 different ways that it all comes about. So um, in the government, I would think, will potentially be about establishing a standard and allowing other folks to do other things but but establishing a standard. I've spent yeah an ungodly amount of time in this but and and I never anticipated it but it's just kind of the natural progression of things we've been working on and but yeah unfortunately Zach I don't think we're going to buy our helicopter off of uh credit or off of carbon credits. That's that's exactly where I really wanted to get to with this conversation. Yeah. Zach, Bill Zach and I always joke that we need to get a helicopter and yeah carbon credits aren't going to fully do it but uh, unfortunately, maybe someday. But a dollar rise in the corn price. Hey, well, the corn price right? is pretty good. <laughs> I just uh, I just sold the last of my corn though, so I don't have any more corn in the bank. But I do have a check that I need to go deposit today. So good, good so it's for you. Good. You know that's what people don't realize the challenge is marketing this darn stuff. I would have sold it all off the combine and watched. I had to give up my farm to to go to USDA because I could make a decision that would impact my own finances. So, so I've been saved from, from feeling really bad about missing this whole price rise. Cause I would have, I would have flat out missed. You it. would have jumped the gun and you would have gone early. I would have thought three and a quarter, three and a half, you know, why in the world it's never going to get to four bucks. Why in the world would I wait for, for that? I'm sh- I'm sure glad you feel better about it, Bill. <laughs> um, so, Bill, we've been watching these um, carbon markets and policy and stuff for the for a long time. But here, really recently, my two Republican senators from Iowa, Senator Chuck Grassley and Senator Joni Ernst, um, have come out in support of the Growing Climate Solutions Act and some of these carbon initiatives. Any takeaway on how you've seen, you know, the bipartisanship or different political angles to this any any thoughts on how that's kind of changed and and how that's developing i guess in on the policy side yeah i mean i think there's still a wide sense of of uh, responses out there there's a lot of folks who'd say don't tell me every every weather event is is caused by climate and caused by people um but 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 there is a sense that 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 there's something going on out there potentially around weather. We don't know what it is and climate, um, but really, certainly, I think there's a sense that that there's a political movement here that says we've got issues around carbon dioxide and, and certainly a political dynamics that are going to lead us down this road. Let's make sure that it's done the right way. Let's make sure that it's done, you know, it's science-based way and an incentive-based way as opposed to it to you know, use the carrot, not the stick, um, and and let's make sure that we're doing things thoughtfully. And so, there's folk, there's some grudging participation. There's probably some enthusiastic participation, um, but I would say um, certainly more participation out there in this. And I think it's a recognition that not only is this an issue here, it's an issue other places. Um, and uh, while we may or may not have a sense of exactly what it means or whether everything we're going to do contributes it, frankly, if you know, there's a there's folks out there I know that are producing organic crops that say I don't think they're any better than the other stuff, but but the market's asking for them, 
And if there's a market here, then let's be smart about how this market is created and, and I'm willing to participate in it. And so I think there's a participation level where some folks were just saying, if I stay away from this, it won't happen. Now they're saying it's going to happen. I need to figure out where I'm going to be involved. Bill, I want to, I want to turn this to, you know, your farm that you just brought up. Um, and yeah, you haven't been able to, to be directly involved as a conflict of interest, of course, to your role at USDA, but are you able to get back on the farm now? Or what are some of the things you're up to? You know, let's, let's talk farming here a little bit. Tell us about your farm. So my farm is uh, Northwest Iowa, as, as Zach said, up at Spirit Lake. <laughs> um, and so uh, um, farmed on it. My grandpa started it back in the 1930s, and we raised our kids in the same house grandpa and grandma lived in. And and uh, just, I, it, it, I didn't grow it very much during my time back farming because I started going off the farm to do other things, getting involved in uh, Corn Growers Association, and then as as Secretary of Ag in Iowa, so it became a weekend farm. It was uh, six or 800 acres of of crops up there, and that's the part of the world where that can be three or four fields. Um, you can get that, so you can you can get that done on weekend and with lights on the tractor. Um, had a guy that helped me. Um, still have all the equipment sitting in a shed. Um, my brother-in-law's farming it now, and sister, and they're probably doing a better job than I was. Uh, because they're thinking about it every day, and I was thinking about other things part of the time. But one of those things I did get from being gone was um, an interest more in no-till and strip-till. I started with strip-till, went to no-till, um, was no-till for about 20 years. Um, then as I got, it's, I was at the uh, Secretary of Ag in Iowa, we, we really looked at water quality and knew that cover crops was part of that, as well as buffer strips and bioreactors and saturated buffers and lots of other things out there um, and technologies. But cover crops was something that I could watch people do that that I thought were really innovative and creative. And some of that was down in your area, Mitchell, Washington County, number one county for cover crops in Iowa. Um, and and it was folks down there that that, could help me understand. And so I started trying cover crops. And I, my neighbor said, you can't raise cover crops up here on the Minnesota border. And and we could. Um, you know, I'd, I'd often have them flown on um, around uh, Labor Day. Um, and uh, then, you know, make sure you got enough moisture. I did it a few times without moisture and didn't have anything. Uh, but but if you had moisture, those cover crops had come up, they'd be there at harvest time, they'd get growing some probably six or seven years of, of you know, 100 and probably 200 acres, 100 acres of, of corn, 100 acres of soybean cover crops, uh, rye, just rye, um, in, in, out of the 800 acres or 600 acres that I had. So really enjoyed it really thought it did some great things for the soil i don't have any numbers to tell you what it was doing but i liked it hopefully um get back out haven't figured out exactly what's next for me um would love to be able to fit in a little bit of farming uh in with that as well uh but it'll probably be a little bit i won't make my living there i'll probably do something else but uh certainly want to be able to get out in the tractor and get out on the on our own land a little bit. Billy, you can get into professional podcasting like Zach and I do. 
<laughs> That's right. That's an option. And, and you buy and, and, and then get your used helicopters when you're 100%. done with them, right? For 100%. all the money you're making from podcasts. Okay, so I got to ask here, Bill, the, the burning question from all the listeners. What is it like having Donald Trump as your boss? And any good stories, any good stories about that? Because there's got to be, there's got to be some. <laughs> I wish I could make up one here real quick. Um, he never swung by the office. So I don't have any good story. <laughs> I'd have to make one up. I think you'd have nightmares about him saying, you're fired. I, you know, you just don't want to be one of his tweets. You don't want to be in one of his tweets. And I never was, as far as I know. And so I think I would have known if I was. That's a so good way to judge the job that you're doing. You know, as long as you're not on the president's Twitter feed, you should be okay. That's right. <laughs> Bill, we're going to have to let you go here. This has been awesome and I was, and great to catch up with you. And again, thanks for all your work over these last couple of years. And we'll be watching close on what's next. Appreciate it, Bill. It's been great talking to you. Appreciate it. All right, everyone. Now it's time for a listener voicemail. Here's one that rolled in a few months after season two had ended, and we wanted to be sure to include it. Hi, Zach and Mitchell. I'm Colton Turlington. I'm out of Kentucky. Me and my dad uh, run cattle and we bale some square bales for the local horse farmers right around us. I just want to thank you guys for uh, all the knowledge you guys have given me on other categories of agriculture. I listen to you guys while I'm in the cloud. Bailing hay. Thank you, guys. Hey, man. Thanks for... Thanks for the love. Yeah, absolutely. See, we it, like what we're doing on the podcast too. There doesn't always have to be a question. I mean, sometimes you can just call in and praise Mitchell and I. We love those kinds of calls. We do. Go give us a rating or something. I think those those would be good. Tell your friends too. That's it for Fieldwork today. Our show is produced by Annie Baxter with lots of great help this season from Lori Stern, Amy Mayer, Mike Langseth, and Corey Suzuki. Kristen Schmidt runs our social media, Ellie Lyons does our marketing, and Lauren Humper is our project coordinator. Special thanks to Veronica Rodriguez, Eric Romani, and Johnny Vince Evans for engineering and mixing our show this season. Johnny Vince also composed and performed our theme music. Be sure to check us out on social media. We're at Fieldwork Talk on all the usual channels, and we'd love it if you would write us a review and help other people find the podcast. Don't forget, of course, that we love hearing from you, so give us a call with your comments or questions at 651-228-4810. That is 651-228-4810. Thanks for listening. Tune in every week, and we'll catch you next time.